This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, Samir, this is a Ashteed deep dive podcast. And as we were discussing before I hit record, you're like the third or fourth person that pitches or that has pitched me on Ashteed and seems like a pretty simple business, um, one that I think I can understand. And so I'm I'm excited to pick your brain and dive into this and 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 maybe I can get a little bit more conviction and um, understand kind of the unit economics and 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 how Ashteed plays in that in that sandbox that is equipment rentals. So before we dive into the business specifically, let's get some background on, you know, kind of who Samir Hakora is and how did you start Alphan Capital and why you even choose the name Alphan Capital? Sure. Well, look, thanks very much, uh, Brian, for having me, having me on uh, on your podcast. I've listened to a few episodes and it's uh, they're pretty insightful. So I feel privileged to be here. Um, so how did I get started investing? I, I started investment banking. I worked at a large investment bank uh, quite a few years ago, got my formal training in finance, worked on mergers and acquisitions and IPOs and that kind of thing. Went off to business school. After business school, I thought, well, don't want to go back into banking or go more onto the sort of buy side, as it were. And um, as it happened, uh, the family business was in real estate. My father used to manage a billion pound portfolio for the uh, Abu Dhabi Royal family in London. Oh, wow. um, and that ended um, as I was finishing business school. So I went and said, you know what, let me join him. He started investing on his own account. And I thought it was a nice opportunity to you know, learn from someone who had a vested interest in teaching me as well. And that was that was wonderful. Uh, that was around 2005. Then, uh, you know, 2007, eight, nine. You know, you had the whole GFC, and uh, we we happened to have a small business in the Caribbean, 
it's a long story how we got there uh but i sort of was promptly shipped off to the caribbean to help manage this business and uh you know we grew it sold it and it was, it was a phenomenal i was very i was very lucky it was a phenomenal experience in having like a holding company structure having a we had a supermarket business food services uh retail wholesale uh which was just gushing cash flows had um, a lot of um, um scale economics and how we sort of you know i learned how we redeploy that into sort of real estate and other investments uh, we sold it in 2013, started managing family money, and then opened up to outside capital in 2019 at the urging of a couple of friends and stuff. And um, really look for this, um, you know, uh, the holding company structure, given that I come from that background, is something that appeals to me. We, we can get into that if people might be interested. Yeah, so walk me through how you ended up running a Caribbean supermarket. That sounds, <laughs> it's not your conventional path to becoming a fund manager. No, no, it's not. Um, my a friend of my father's, um, his son uh, had a law firm in the Turks and Caicos Islands and had a couple of partners. And um, there was this bankrupt uh, supermarket sitting on 64 acres of land. And they said, you know, we think, you know, uh, there's huge potential. It's a very small, but very, you know, rapidly growing company, uh, uh, country, I, I should say. Uh, and it was loss making for the first few years. And my father was interested because he's a real estate guy and said, okay, 64 acres is something I can, you know, I can have fun with. Um, and then, um, you know, it sort of went from there. Yeah. And, and uh, you, it, it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a bunch of scale economics. And so what was, what was that turnaround process like? I mean, did you, did you go in there and kind of get your hands dirty or was it you came in after it was kind of on its feet and, and back in the black? Somewhere in the middle. I, I, I definitely participated towards the latter end, but most of the heavy work was done by the original partners. So, you know, very grateful to them. But um, essentially, this is what happened. You, most produce that goes to the Turks and Caicos comes from Miami. So it sits in shipping containers for a couple of weeks. So your lettuce is pretty wilted. Your, you know, strawberries are not that fresh. And we had the good fortune to hire a really good general manager who he used to call it cubing. He, he, he got the logistics down really well. Uh, where he'd take all the produce and pack it into a shipping container really well, shorten the, uh, the, the time that was sitting there wilting. So we had better quality produce that attracts clients or customers, really, for, for obvious reasons. That increases cash flows. And then, you know, we, we had a few people on the team who were pretty good at the whole capital allocation, building out a team. Uh, you know, scale started to be at scale. Um, we were soon the largest importer on 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 the island so one of the largest employees on the island and so that just meant our costs were sort of amortized over a greater base our yep. shipping and import costs became less and you know once that sort of roller coaster start, or that flywheel i should say starts happening it's it's very hard to disrupt it uh, and were you guys ways. able were you guys able to charge higher prices because the goods were fresher or you know, we ended up charging cost less cost than cost. a lot of people. We charged a lot less than people because uh, we were able to save more on uh, per mm -hmm. unit costs, and um, you know that that was also an attraction. Food prices are very expensive there because everything's in it. There, there's I think it's changed now, but there's no taxes um, in terms of employment taxes and stuff. But there's uh, thirty percent import taxes. So <laughs> take everything in Miami, <laughs> add on shipping costs. Yep. multiplied by approximately 30 percent and you know it's <laughs> it's like a little walmart out there in the turks and caicos 
<laughs> very small. There's, there's there's orders of magnitude uh, smaller, but you know it, it kept us happy for a while. Well, understanding and kind of learning a business inside and out at that point probably has just exponential learning implications for looking at businesses today in the stock market and kind of understanding how long-term capital allocation and long-term business performance works. And it's it's probably something that you can't get by like reading a book or, you know, I just I just wrote a uh, book review on uh, Becoming Trader Joe, which is like one of my favorite biographies and um, like living through that and getting your hands dirty in that is is so much more valuable than any MBA, I think. Um, I, I would tend to agree with you. Um, you know, I'll, I'll make a distinction with my experience in the trade digital guy. It's, you know, it's, it's very different, but in terms of what he's accomplished, but I, I still think, um, it's one thing to read about. It's another thing to actually be part of the decision-making process, make the mistakes, uh, make the successes, learn from those. Um, you know, one of the big things I've, I've learned just as a general point is, uh, I'm always amused when fund managers think they know everything that goes on in a company i oh, can yeah. tell you as a small privately held closely held company where i was you know on the board and actively involved um the type of information that went from the sales division manager to the general manager to me there was so much information that would have been sanitized you can only imagine how much information is sanitized as public investors where you, you know, oh yeah insider information uh, and so i think that's one of those things that maybe I have a fresh angle on. Um, the, the other thing that really in, sort of informed my, my investing is this idea of holding companies and things where, um, you know, we had a really nice situation and this, we were able to, you know, allocate capital from, um, you know, one of the cash flow businesses into like building up real estate, that kind of thing. And that, that, that for us was really powerful. So, you know, not surprisingly in my investment journey, I look for companies with that kind of, you know, holding or that kind of capital allocation uh, thing. And I, I call it the one thing we weren't able to do, but someone like a really inspired by someone like a Warren Buffett, not to be cheesy and mention Buffett, but um, with this idea of synthetic leverage, I call it. So everyone knows Buffett's a phenomenal investor, right? Um, there was this wonderful AQR paper that came out uh, a few years ago that said, look, Buffett made his underlying investments over 40 years or about 15% compound annual, which is phenomenal. That makes you very, very successful. Yeah. But then he used leverage from using all the insurance float uh, from his insurance operations to basically have cheap non-recourse leverage, which he was able to sort of scale from about 15% compound annual to like the mid 20% compound annual. And that's, you know, that's the difference between being you know, your run of the mill billionaire and being <laughs> Warren Buffett sized billionaire. It's uh, obviously, I don't use leverage in my, in my portfolio, I can't do that kind of thing. But uh, I thought, look, this is genius. You know, that's like the holding company plus. And um, so synthetic leverage is this overlay I look for uh, in a lot of, I'd say about 70% of the uh, companies I invest in have this synthetic leverage portfolio. It's a big, uh, big focus of mine. Yeah. And we're definitely going to dive into that with Ash Teed, but yeah. you mentioned uh, how information gets sanitized when it goes, like if you're inside a business and then a few layers deep and by the time it gets to you, especially as a public shareholder, it's, it's incredibly sanitized. And it makes me wonder, like, there's this dichotomy, I think, in public markets where people want to analyze and constantly follow a business like they're the private owner. But I wonder if they actually received the information the way a private owner would receive it, whether it's every day or every week, 
the propensity to actually hold that investment would probably decline because businesses gyrate so much more frequently than every quarter. And you just see that quarterly print and you're like, oh, they increased earnings from 13 to 15 cents. But then if you peel back the layer throughout that quarter, it's like, oh my gosh, we're not going to make it. Oh my gosh, we're not going to make it like up and down, up and down. And so it, it's, it's, it's just kind of this, this, this funny mental exercise where everyone kind of wants to think like a private owner, but if you, if you had the tools and if you had the information flow that a private owner did, I don't know if you'd have the staying power. Um, look, I think you raise a, raise a fantastic point. I think um, there's a couple of points. So the first thing about private owners is uh, there's this notion of control, right? If you're a private owner, you probably have a notion that you can make decisions that you know impact the direction of the company, and that probably gives you a sense of um, I don't call it security, but a sense of um, you know what I, I might be the master of my own destiny a little bit. Look, that 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 alone isn't enough. There are a lot of private businesses that don't succeed, right? So yeah. uh, having control by itself isn't uh, isn't enough to make a business a success. Um, the other thing is, I think, being a private owner, you, you see a lot more of the, the, you know, how the sausage is made, as they say, or, you know, the ugly underside of um, uh, what goes on, how uncertain things are um, uh, sometimes. Or if you have a good business, how it gives you a lot more faith in the business too. So this mm -hmm. uh, being shaken about by markets, I think, is less less of a factor. Um, add in the illiquidity, and, and there's very few business owners I know would be like, "Oh, you know what? Someone's quoting me a price today. I'm going to sell it. Someone's quoting me a price tomorrow. Oh, I'm going to, you know, hang on to it." You you kind of just focus on the people, the customers, the operations, uh, and what you can control, and and get on with it, and then. Over many years, you kind of make those these big sort of existential sort of decisions. Am I going to sell it? Am I going to move on? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's very different to the quarterly um, quarterly uh, cadence. Yeah, and you mentioned part of your investment strategy at Alfin Capital is to look for companies that have this synthetic leverage. Let's yep. dive a little bit deeper into we'll call it your ideal investment at Alpha. And so if you could, if you could create some sort of template for this is the type of business that checks almost every box, what does that look like? Um, you know, that's, that, that, I don't really believe in ideals, but I, I can tell you, I'll, I'll, I, I can tell you the types of companies I like to invest in broadly. Um, so one is like holding companies with great capital allocators who have a, very long-term sort of almost generational outlook who are you know they have like 30 20 30 years of incredible records building value building uh, businesses uh, and have a long way to keep doing that i think that's uh, uh, a lot of these guys are hugely successful families and it's just remarkable that in the public markets we have the privilege of just fractionally owning you know some of their company and and riding along their coattails those are those are the kind of things i think make make investing somewhat easier in many ways they're also diversified i mean you know um each of these companies might have five ten depending on the type of company um uh, subsidiary so you know you have multiple uh industries multiple revenue streams um it, it's a nice situation they kind of go to bed and you know sleep well at night type companies. Other sorts of companies I like, and I think this is a, a wonderful example of uh, synthetic leverage, probably one of the best out there is um, 
the publicly traded private equity companies, you know, the KKRs and people as well. I think, you know, carried interest is one of the you know, marvels of the financial system. And it's a, it's a great wealth generator for those guys. And mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to buy a little bit of their of their shares and basically just let them do their thing. You know, it's uh, it's it's quite powerful. Um, companies that have um, what do you call it? Uh, royalty revenues, royalty income. That, that's you know that, that's not other people's money you're, you're you're leveraging, but maybe other people's operations, which you can do at uh, mm-hmm. very high some margins, and that's uh, that can scale very quickly. Things like that. Yeah. So some you're... combination of that type of company with good long-term operators would be my ideal company. So you've ran the fund, I think, since 2019, I believe you said. Um, what lessons have have had the biggest impact on you running a public markets fund as opposed to, let's say, managing family money or private money? Um, the biggest difference is actually writing letters and sort of communicating um, sort of the thoughts in my head and my approach to uh, to outside investors. Um, um, you know, the, it, it's great writing these letters because it sort of forces me to sort of clarify my thinking yeah. a lot, but it also makes me think, you know, very carefully before I do anything, very carefully before I say anything, you, know, you take the sort of fiduciary responsibilities very seriously. Um, so, so there's an element of that. Um, the other one is just, um, Really, my style is just to try and take the I'm investing family capital and having people sort of join me along for that ride. Uh, so I try not to change the way I invest too much because I'm like, look, mm-hmm. I can't promise you what will happen in the markets. Certainly can't guarantee returns or anything like that. Right. Uh, but I do, you know, I, I, I do assure you that I have a ton of uh, you know skin in the game and our interests mm-hmm. are very aligned. So you know, join join me for the ride. We'll try our best to make it a, a good one. Now, how many positions do you hold on average in the fund, and has that changed over time? It's approximately twenty. No, that that's been pretty uh, pretty okay. consistent. But the top ten have about between sixty and seventy percent. Um, so it's still fairly okay. concentrated. Got it. No, I like that. Um, let's dive into Ashteed. We're 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 going to spend right. the rest of the podcast on Ashteed. Um, it's a fun fun business. Like I said earlier, I've been pitched it by like two or three other people, people that I consider, you know, very smart investors. So let's, uh, let's start from the top 30,000 foot view. Pretend I don't know anything about the business. What is Ashteed? What does it do? And how does it make money? Okay. Uh, Ashteed rent out um, equipment, the construction industry and in, in various other industries. So um, even though the operations are fairly complex, when you dive into it, the, the actual principle is very simple. They buy a piece of equipment, and they rent it out to uh, both large and small companies um, who need to uh, borrow the equipment on a shorter-term basis. So it's a rentals company. Got it. And how did you initially find this idea? What drew you to it? Um, I'd heard about them and their large competitor, United Rentals, for a while. And I know Ashton had a sort of capital market stay in 2021. Uh, and the, you know, the shares performed really strongly after that, which kind of discouraged me from looking at it. Um, <laughs> What one of but then you know with, with all the recent market volatility and the prices going down, I said, you know what, let me have another look. And that, one of the ways I find ideas, um, and some people may not like this; it might be controversial. But I, I read a lot of other people's letters and I see what a, a lot of people have invested in, and I use that as a first pass 
filter to narrow down the you know ten thousand or so com potential stocks to look at into yep. something more manageable. Um, a, a little bit like what you know, investor Munish Pabrai might say, cloning. Except that I don't just blindly copy. I, I just use that as a if intelligent fund managers are allocating their time and money to something, mm -hmm. maybe it's worth having a look and putting you know through my lens and my filters. Uh, and the more I did that, the more I said, you know, this is a really interesting company. Yeah, and just kind of going off on tangent, I I read you know every every investor letter that I can get my hands on, and I've got that weekly series that I try to highlight ideas that I think are interesting in each of these letters. And the the best part about it is you you create this uh, like artificial team of analysts that are highly skilled that allocate capital for a living that do the initial legwork for you. So you you start on sometimes second, third base with an idea, especially if you know the industry, you can you can pick up so much so quickly if you if you read someone's letter that you trust that kind of meets your ideals and your philosophies. And it makes it makes cycling through and turning over rocks much more fun because you can get through so 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 much more. You know, I agree with you. Um, so, some people have the, the view, you know what, you should read the, you know, 10Ks and Qs, um, the least, you know, uh, marketing salesy type materials first, form your own views, and try not to be influenced by what other people think. So I think you have to guard against that. Yeah. Uh, but I think the benefits outweigh the, the risks if you have a sort of strong process and if you kind of know the kind of thing you're looking for, uh, then it serves as a wonderful filtering mechanism. So what specifically, going back to Ashteed, what specifically did you like about the business and what were some initial red flags that uh, popped up when you did your first run through due diligence? So just very briefly, going back to the Caribbean, I had a very small uh, waste collection company, which I still own a small part of. Um, and we don't have Ashteed in, in that island, but... Um, the idea of renting out non-core equipment was something I could very much um, resonate with because as a smaller company, we had our, our, our handful of trucks we used to do the waste collection and, and then recycling and stuff. But every now and then, it, we, we'd have to rent out the SkyTrack or something like that to unload large containers. Um, and this piece of equipment cost you know, 100,000, 200,000, something like that. And we use them for a couple of hours in the month. So yeah, buying them, makes no sense renting them makes every sense um and frankly the company that was renting to us had complete pricing power over us they could treble you know their hourly rentals and we'd still have to pay it because mm -hmm. you know the cost difference was so big and i thought okay i kind of understand the customer's pain point here again you have to be careful about not over extrapolating one's own experience into, into another situation um but I think I understand the customer's pain point of view. I, I really understand the attraction uh, that a company like Ashton can bring to its customers. So that encouraged me to dive in. And then yeah, once Ashton, I did, so I started looking at the numbers. The numbers were pretty good. Yeah, Ashton seems like one of those businesses where if you apply the jobs to be done framework, it's 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 very, very simple to come to that conclusion. Like, oh, the job to be done is you need to move this huge pile of dirt or you need to move this huge obstacle and you don't want to spend a hundred grand to use it once and maybe this is just a one-off project and you're ne you're you're never going to need a bulldozer the size of a mobile home ever again and you just choose exactly. to rent exactly and, and it makes it a lot more um when you 
it's not just the, the cost, but also the maintenance. Um, yeah. You know, having a handful of trucks and a lot of their customers, they have a lot of large customers and they also have a lot of many smaller customers, especially for the smaller customers, maintaining equipment, you know, having a list of all the filter, you know, the, the oil filters, air filters, all the fluids you need, having, you know, trained staff on hand and just having a robust maintenance schedule is um, literally quite expensive and, uh, yeah. and difficult to manage. Uh, being so, able to just, you know, so almost like you, in the Uber economy, press the button, yeah. have it delivered to you and then take the waste <laughs> Yeah. Know? So Ashteed is this, is this big company we know today, but obviously it it, it it wasn't always like that. So if you've if you've kind of examined the history of Ashteed, can you walk us through how they grew to the size they are today, and 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 any economics or any economies of scale um, that were present that allowed them to kind of get that flywheel going of hey, like now all of a sudden we've got all the equipment, we can branch out and charge you know rent rent a ton of equipment to a ton of customers, and and really make some money. Yeah, so so they started, I believe, in 1947 in um, uh, in the UK, Surrey in the UK. Um, I can't remember how many locations they had. It was something like, you know, three local locations, um, and, and they grew. And I think in 1986 it was that they went public with revenues of a little over a million or something. Um, mm -hmm. And then in 2006, I believe, they bought Sunbelt in the, UK, in the US. I think, right? Yeah. And Sunbelt is their big brand over here. I see the trucks all over the place, delivery vans. Um, and that really sort of spurred their growth, uh, spurred, I should say, their growth um, in the US. And they've uh, taken a Greenfield and a Bolton acquisition strategy. So they have a pretty disciplined um, uh, and repeating sort of Bolton acquisition and investing in sort of Greenfield growth type strategy that's uh, over time, it's helped them grow. And, uh, one of the things about this industry is it, it's um, very much a scale economics type of business for, for a number of reasons. And as they grew big, sort of growth and scale began scale. And, and that's just a really nice position to be in. You mentioned there's kind of a multitude of, 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 of scale economic benefits. Do you want to just kind of riff on those and maybe maybe list each of them off? Yeah, so one thing is, um, I think them and their main competitor, United Rentals. Um, United Rentals is about 16% of the market. They have about 12% of the market. And the next competitor, the Dow, has, I think, about 4% of the market. Okay, well. Wow. Uh, and, and that's been growing. Um, you know, I think 10 or so years ago, the numbers were something like that combined the two big companies at about 12% of the market. And I think in the future, the two two largest might or the three largest if that might have fifty percent of the market. So you know, the numbers are there that are showing this, you know, land grab that's actually been happening. It's a very clear right. trend. Um, one of the big things is um, purchasing power. They go to all the OEMs that produce and, and manufacture equipment. Uh, and I think they get something like twenty percent discounts, depending on the type of equipment it is and how specialized and how big a customer they are. But they've very quickly become the biggest customers for all these manufacturer, OEM manufacturers of um, various construction and, and other equipment and get right. um, big discounts. And you know that, that pricing advantage is very hard to compete against. The other thing that happens is, um, like a lot of these businesses, you have um, root density, rat density, um, where the bigger these companies have uh, become, the more they've invested in locations, 
the better. No one they've become. A lot of the times, I think 75% of the equipment they they rent out, they deliver. They have the 15, 15th largest fleet in the US uh, okay. in terms of delivery equipment. Um, so when you're delivering and picking things up and, and all that sort of thing, being large, having root density very much allows you to spread your costs out, um, just like you know, uh, a lot of other businesses that have sort of delivery type uh, economics. Um, and that's a very powerful, very difficult thing to compete with if you're not very large. Um, they can spread their maintenance costs against a much, much larger uh, base of equipment. So the cost per unit to um, keep equipment up and running um, is um, better for them than for a lot of their customers and their competitors. And I think there's a, there's a couple of things. Breadth of offerings. The larger you are, the more mm -hmm. you can, uh, types of equipment you can offer. And um, Ashton in particular have this, and United for that matter, have this um, um, really interesting strategy of growing what they call the specialty uh, lines of business, which, are, uh, which seems to be working very well for them. Uh, and so you take a customer who says, look, I can get it probably at a better price or a better availability, I should say, sooner um, and more equipment and more reliably from these guys. Let me just go there. It, it just yeah. becomes a, a no-brainer for customers. There's a lot of similarities. And again, this is probably recency bias on my part, but I just finished diving in and 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 really trying to understand uh, Ferguson, which is a plumbing distribution business. Also kind of the kind of similar as Ashteed, based uh, founded in the UK and then made its way over to the US and is focusing on the US business. But uh, there's a lot of economies of scale benefits. And the thing I want to go back to and kind of reiterate is it sounds like there's kind of two really from a from a cost perspective, there's two main advantages to Ashteed. One, you get the volume discount, right? So 20%. So the larger you grow, the greater that discount in terms of total purchase value um that you can buy from these oems but then the other thing you mentioned is 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 route density and it and it made me think if part of their plan or if part of i guess like the strategy right for for, for something like this is the more spots that you get or the more routes you add to let's say your 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 collection the lower the logistics and transport transportation costs, let's say per unit of equipment that you rent. And so if you can get into more places throughout the US, all of a sudden you have lower transportation costs, which allow you to generate higher margins and then allow you to grow even more, which allows you to branch out more, buy more equipment. And so it's like this, you know, positive feedback loop of, of lower and lower unit costs, plus just the ability to keep growing at scale at greater profits than your competitors. You, you said it beautifully. That's exactly right. And in the case of um, two largest companies, Ashton in particular and, and United, they embarked on this very interesting strategy of growing. They have their general tool business, but they also have specialty, which is now about 30% approximately of their revenues. And specialty is um, things like, uh, they call it power and HVAC, so emergency or mobile. Uh, electricity generators, flooring solutions, um, solutions to, to, to help sort of um, uh, dry, um, flooded work sites, things like that. Like and it's very well. interesting. Yeah. Yep. It, it's, it's, um, it's a very interesting business because one, it's growing faster. 
Uh, two, it's got a lot less rental penetration than the general business. The general business is about 50%. 50% of um, uh, equipment is, is, is rented in the, uh, uh, in the US in, in round numbers, whereas with a lot of the uh, specialty, they're like in the low single digit percentages. So there's a, a huge amount of room to grow uh, and they're less commoditized. Um, so they, you know, again, this adds to this uh, idea of like pricing power for these guys. Uh, and the other thing that's happening is to go to your point about getting more locations, the costs and benefits uh, being better, I should call it cluster economics. What they do is they, they, they've divided the US into all these different um, regions. And in the largest reason, they try and get multiple locations in the region. Um, and what they've found is as they've done that, uh, there are a lot of, you can actually measure the benefits. They get about two, two and a half times as many customers. Each customer typically rents, I forget the exact number, but a certain percentage more uh, revenues per customer and all falls down to the bottom line where their EBITDA margins are four, four and a half percent higher than mm -hmm. markets where they don't have cluster economics. So you add everything up and it's, it's, it's actually a very interesting growth story from our perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that that's fascinating. And it makes me wonder, like, does Ashtead think about and this is this is gonna be a wrong kind of analogy, but let's kind of work with it, but wallet share, if that makes sense, of their customers. So the way I mean it is let's say you have a demolition company and they have fifty percent owned vehicles or owned equipment, fifty percent rental. Is part of Ashtee's strategy to kind of say, hey, we're we're not only going to expand and grab more customers, but we're going to grab more wallet share, where over time, that demolition company goes from 50% owned to 20% owned, 80% rented. And we're going to make sure that of that 80% rented, Ashtee gets all that business or tries to get all that business. Is that kind of how they, I guess, in That's terms exactly of growth right. algorithm? That's, yeah. Yeah, great question. That's exactly right. If you look at the long-term trends in the industry, uh let's just look at the general tool i think it's 50 ish percent of equipment is rented it used to be you know a couple of decades ago it used to be about 10 percent 20 percent something like that yeah. um in the uk uh about 75 percent of equipment is rented and wow you know, imagine we're not record saying you know in the us they think we'll get to in the next few years at least 60 percent so you've got this idea of um multiple tailwinds of secular growth happening yeah. in this industry. One is just with what the companies will have said is that we believe that if you can provide a robust rental solution, people will flock to it and people will want it for all the advantages we mentioned before. You know, you, you have less CapEx tied up, you sort of shift your CapEx to more uh, variable, this from the customer's point of view, more variable OPEX. Um, you um, have the latest types of equipment, uh, you know, with all the whole ESG and getting things, you know, more green and, and, and more newest types of energy and all that kind of thing. Um, you can keep up with the latest versions of the equipment because Ashdeath is buys them in bulk. Um, you don't have to deal with all the maintenance uh, headaches as much. So yeah, th th there's multiple sort of growth on growth that's happening. Now, let's, I want to go through the unit economics of let's say $1 flowing through Ashteed. So I'm a, like I said, I'm an owner of a demolition company. I go into a, we'll call it like a Sunbelt rentals or, you know, some, some, some sort of equivalent. 
and I go in and I say, Hey, I, I, I need this, you know, bulldozer or whatever. I need, I need this heavy equipment rental today. How does that $1 that I pay Ash Teed, how does that flow through the business? Yeah. So let's say, let's make it a hundred dollars. The numbers are a bit easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ash buys a piece of equipment for a hundred dollars, right? Uh, and then they rent it out um, for about $50 a year is the total amount of income on 50? average they'll make 50. 50 now, okay. their operating margins are around 27%. This is wow. uh, EBITDA. Um, so that's about $13.5 on the $100. And they rent it out for well, anywhere between five and seven years. And then they sell it and they'll probably get 30 to $40 back. So it's a nice, um, you know, th th there's a very active market in, in used uh, equipment. Uh, and the nice thing about it is they can sort of, depending on economic conditions and, and all that sort of thing, they can they can flex how much they buy, how much they sell. Uh, it's right. not perfect, but it's uh, it gives them quite a bit of power, uh, power but uh, flexibility, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of managing their, their finances. Um, so yeah, like I mean, for a company like Ashton, the their capex is really kind of like their cost of goods sold because they're buying equipment. Uh, their EBITDA margins are around about fifty-ish percent, <laughs> and their operating margins are around about twenty-seven percent. And the return wow. on equity, you know, varies, but let's call it eighteen to twenty percent. They've been growing EBITDA on average for the past, you know, decade for about in very round numbers about twenty percent. So it's it's. So as well, I said before, you know, I, I could identify from the customer's point of view, but then when I started looking at the numbers, I thought, wow, this is a, you know, this is a nice, this seems to be a nice company. How does Ashti determine how much to rent each piece of equipment? Like, is there, like, is there some sort of, I mean, it sounds like between Ashti and let's say United Rentals, they, you know, run basically a duopoly on the industry. How is pricing determined? I assume it's on like a per piece of equipment basis, right? So like you can't charge a bulldozer, but you charge maybe some sort of forklift. So how do they, how do they price? Is it some sort of like, Hey, we want to hit a target margin and then we back into it based on how much we paid for it. Like walk me through that if you can. Um, I don't have all the details on their sort of, you know, internal, uh, Pricing, yeah. but generally they look to have, um, like I said, fifty percent of the cost of the equipment on uh, rental every year, and they have a pretty sophisticated. And they invest a lot of time in their sort of IT behind the scenes. Uh, they have dynamic pricing, sort of kind of like you know airlines with airline seats. Dynamic pricing on a sort of unit by unit, area by area. Um, sort of uh, geography by geography type basis. Um, and I think one of the things that has played out on is if you go back to the 2008-9, um, what's happened is back then, rental prices, because the construction market got hit, rental prices went down 20% and their revenues and cash flows you know, got hit pretty hard. Now with the top two companies controlling over 25%, 28% of the market, uh, what they said was during COVID, they were able to maintain prices much more uh, effectively without, um, and I guess that's just another one of the benefits of scale. Um, they do everything on a return on invested capital or return on investment basis. That's the, those are the big, uh, yeah. one of the big drivers. 
uh, in the business. I was reading some expert network thing. I think one of the former employees was complaining because he wanted to give um, customers a discount because it was a good, good customer. And the company was like, no, you can't do that. You know, we have very firm, you know, return investor capital metrics here. And um, interesting. <laughs> so, you know, um, won't win goes back to all the thing. But, you know, companies that focus on ROI tend to be, you know, yeah. tend to do well. So, I'm sorry, yeah. what was your question? No, I was going to say, you're not winning any NPS points on that transaction there. <laughs> no, no, probably not. But um, that seems to be what they're, they're a very metrics driven company from what, yeah. from what I see. Well, and the other thing too, you 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 mentioned this. As they scale, they only get better at pricing and 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 having a having a pulse on on the price of equipment and kind of the price of everything in their industry. So that that just benefits them even more. Correct. What was my next question? My next question it was about um, competition in the sense of United Rentals versus Ashteed. And so again, if I'm a you know, brand spanking new person to this industry, to this business, the first thing I'm going to realize is, oh, like there's Ashteed, but then I could also buy the market leader, quote unquote, it's got the largest market share. I could just buy United Rentals. Um, what's, what are the main differences between these businesses, right? And I guess, I guess kind of a frank way of putting it is like, what makes Ashteed better than United Rentals? To be honest, they're both great companies, um, I believe. You know, so I, I don't think it's um, you make a big mistake going with one over the other. Um, United's number one; it's grown a little bit faster, and, and a big difference is they've grown through large acquisitions, uh, multi, you know, billion-dollar-plus acquisitions, and they do them less frequently. Ashton, on the other hand, has done a lot of smaller uh, bolt-on-type acquisitions. And again, it's you know it's your preference, which is better. I mean, you know, in a way, maybe you know, the large transactions if done well will sort of speed your growth. Um, but there's a lot more you know integration risk. Risk uh, a lot of small bolt-on acquisitions are, are easy to digest. Um, it just seems to be the the way these guys do it. Um, I think uh, lots of small bolt-on maybe is is, is less risky uh, as a as a ongoing strategy. Uh, and the other one is, I think, um, just when it comes especially to, to specialty, um, each company just because of where they've invested or what companies have acquired in the past, uh, they have their areas of strength. So I think trench security, uh, trench safety and pumps and stuff like that is very, is a very strong business for uh, United Rentals, whereas power and scaffolding are two strong areas for um, Ashton. So uh, from a customer's point of view, the large customers probably already have you know, relationships in place with one or the other, and they're probably likely to keep going to the company they've already done business with. It's not going to mm -hmm. change too much. Um, but it's a pretty big market. Um, I think the duopoly is perfectly fine. Yeah. So no, I mean, well. yeah, that was kind of one of my, one of my thoughts coming into this was, I don't know if it's like a and or one or the other scenario. The, both of these companies probably grow well into the future and the market's large enough and it's fragmented enough where you can have a duopoly for the next five to 10 years without, let's say, United Rentals stepping on Ashtead's turf, Ashtead stepping on United Rentals. But like, let's 
if we if we were to kind of hypothesize, if I put myself in a customer's position, what are the reasons why I would choose to rent from United Rentals versus an Ashton? Call it Sunbelt for 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 those in the states that are more familiar. Is it just the proximity? Because that's my bet. It's like whichever company is closest to that customer is going to get that business. But I could be wrong. So that's kind of my hypothesis. So, like, what do you think is the reason there? Um, I I would I think I'd agree with your hypothesis. Maybe unless it came to one of these specialty solutions, where you know someone really needs uh, expertise in the sort of vertical markets that some belts are really good at, or the vertical markets that United are very good at, and they they may go to those instead. But I think. Um, it's like if you go to Lowe's or, or do you go to Home Depot? You know, it's that kind right. of situation. Um, yeah, no, it's a good comparison. You can probably get what you want from either most of the yeah. time. And actually, you know, it's funny you mentioned Home uh, Home Depot and Lowe's because I have a question. And, and again, I'm going to preface this like this might be a dumb question. Um, but one of the potential issues with going back to Ferguson, the 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 plumbing distributor, one of the potential issues is Lowe's and Home Depot really dive into their pro slash contractor business and use their stores as these mini DCs and they really push getting product to pros and contractors that would normally go to Ferguson, right? And so right. one 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 question I have is take a Kubota or a John Deere or a Caterpillar. What's what's stopping these companies, these large equipment manufacturers, what's stopping them from trying to create a similar business segment inside their existing thing where it's equipment rentals, but instead of going to United Rental or instead of going to Sunbelt, you go straight through to Kubota, you go straight through to John Deere. John Deere gives you special pricing and you can kind of cut out United Rental from the picture. Like, is that is that is that even a worry? Or if that is, how how are the businesses set up and the economics such that they'll be able to withstand that interesting question i hadn't really thought about it but just uh, thinking as you're speaking i think it's a bit different so john deere has their range of equipment uh in whatever sort of verticals they're you know farming or what have you um do they do everything do they have every piece of equipment you're going to need uh, at a job site, uh, maybe they can do all of it. Maybe they can do most of it, but not all of it. I right. think that's uh, uh, maybe a big uh, factor. I mean, so it's a little bit like asking, I suppose, would you know, um, a car manufacturer go and sort of try and become Uber? I mean, now I think with you know, all, all the companies are starting to do that, but. The past, I don't know how many years that you know the, the car manufacturers, vehicle manufacturers didn't, didn't try to become taxi services. Um, maybe that's a you know a crude, uh, crude comparison. I think they're slightly different businesses. Um, the other things I think someone like uh, uh, Ashton and or Sundelt and, and, and United are very big important customers for these guys um, rather than dealing with the logistics uh, and the operating complexity of sorting out a rentals type business you can just manufacture the equipment and sell it at a profit you know it's yeah uh, it, it's just a different 
it is a different operating playbook. Well, the other thing I just thought of too, right as right as you said that is, if one of these companies did try to create something like that, you would lose so much money in the sales volume that you get from a United Rentals or from an Ashteed, right? Because if you if you tell Ashteed like, hey, we're going to try to do this ourselves, Ashteed's going to be like, hey, you know, screw you guys, we're never buying from you again, and all of a sudden your volumes dry up, and maybe, you know, the the small rental income that you generated. You know, let's say for example, you jet you 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 make the switch, and then you make a hundred dollars a year in rental income, but you just lost twenty thousand dollars a year in equipment sales. So then, so then the comparison becomes kind of mute. But the other thing you mentioned, and it's funny you mentioned this. I just finished the book. Um, well, just on that, but there's also yeah. the whole operations that which are not easy to scale, right? Now instead of having just manufacturing plants, uh, and I mean, albeit these are complicated and capital intensive. Uh, you now have to have distribution, you have to have local locations, now you have to have uh, maintenance stuff. You know, basically, all the problems that Ashton's solving for its customers, all the OEMs have to now start solving en masse for yeah. customers as well and taking on that complexity. I think it's anything's possible. I think it's unlikely. Well, it's funny you mentioned that 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 car example, right? Like the OEM manu car manufacturer becoming an Uber. I just finished the book Lean Solutions. I forget the author, but um, they had an example, and this is this this was a real a real story in I want to say the late '90s or even before that. Uh, there was a general manager at GM that pitched that idea that basically said, "Hey, let's in in you know we let's let's make these cars, but then let's also create a mobile fleet where you know we just put cars in people's driveways and they rent them." And they defer all the maintenance and we do all this for them, basically creating like, you know, maybe, maybe not an Uber, but almost like a, a eToro or something like that. And they had this idea like way back then. And the, the kind of conclusion was this guy got like laughed out of the room and they said no to hell with this plan. Um, but it's, it's kind of funny because like those people were thinking about that, like way back then in the nineties, like right, you know, before Uber, before eToro. So people are having these thoughts and it kind of makes me think like, I'm sure a Kubota or a John Deere, someone in, in a meeting at some time has been like, Hey, what if we just rented them out ourselves? And then they just got laughed out of the room for all the reasons you, you just described. You know, I think it's, um, as you were saying that the thought that went through my mind, uh, was it depends how much value you're adding. So it's not, it's not just a simple case of cutting out the middleman. Okay, you know, the equipment manufacturer going and saying, you know what, Ashton United don't provide any additional value. They're just middlemen we can, you know, cut through. Um, especially now with this whole growth in specialty services mm -hmm. where uh, it's less commoditized. So an example I read somewhere was, uh, let's say there's a flash flood in Texas and there's a work site that's been flooded. Um, a contractor doesn't want to pause um working on the site because you know stoppages in, in working construction are a very big cost yeah. Yeah. um so really now that they don't just want someone to come and say okay rent me five pumps and six dehumidifiers they actually want a almost a, a consultation where mm -hmm. an expert who actually understands this is okay i've looked at your site you need to do this this and this 
As part of that, we'll rent you the equipment, but we're actually going to tell you the process, which areas to tackle first so that the people can keep working on the internal uh, structures while we're doing the external, and then you can swap over. Yep. That kind of more hand-holding. And, um, you know, could an equipment manufacturer do it? Maybe, but it's, you're, starting, you're, adding, you're doing value added rather than just commodity mm -hmm. uh, rentals. And I think that's something that's pretty interesting from yeah, yeah, I appreciate you letting me go on that tangent there because <laughs> it was it was just kind of a question I've I've had with Ferguson for a while. Um, I do want to uh, ask, um, just let's look step back, right? Let's take a macro perspective and let's put on our hats and say, okay, like you know, Samir, this company sounds awesome. They clearly have economies of scale. They have a lot of pricing power they can amortize costs across a huge base, lowers their cost basis, they make 20% plus margins. Um, however, I think the economy is going into a recession. I think housing is going to slow. I think development is going to slow. So why in the world would I buy them today when there's going to be a potential recession next year and all these end markets that they serve are likely going to slow down? Yeah, no, I think um, I think high level, the first thing is trying to decide uh, how much macro paints a picture in one's investment process. I mm -hmm. am not a macro guy. Uh, many, sometimes I wish I were, but it, the reality <laughs> is it's, um, you know, you uh, I try and buy businesses for like five, 10 year periods, that kind of outlook. And um, when you do that and you sort of take sort of cash flows over, you know, five, 10, 15 year sort of discounted cash flow type thinking. Um, yep. What happens in a year or two typically isn't as important, provided you're right on the, uh, on the company, the management and that kind of thing. Uh, so that's my first sort of, you know, sidestep uh, on timing. The other one is, look, definitely I think, I think macro is risk. Um, what's interesting about this company is there is, there's a certain counter cyclical dynamic in their cash flows. And what I mean by that is in their latest quarterly uh, presentation, they put this really interesting slide where they showed EBITDA and cash flow from operations, which has been growing on average called at 20% a year since 2005 to 2022. Um, and that's been growing. And their cash flow from operation has basically grown with maybe 95% of that. So the cash conversion from EBITDA to cash flow from operations is pretty good. Right. But then their free cash flow is pretty low. And it's actually pretty measly. And you think, well, hold on a second. This isn't interesting. <laughs> you know, where's the cash flow? Uh, <laughs> is something wrong? Is there something suspect here? But then what they did was they disaggregated or they highlighted how much of their cash flow is growth capex. And you say, well, look, you know what? If we add back growth capex, this is maintenance capex. This is capex to actually grow EBITDA or what have you. Um, the free cash flow numbers normalized look very attractive, actually. So, you know, it's like in the latest, and you say, okay, that's all hypothetical, what happened? Well, actually what happened in, uh, over COVID uh, was they sort of slowed down some of their CapEx and the numbers really shone through where hmm. they went from sort of free cash flow of about 400 million overnight to free cash flow of over 2 billion. And wow. you're like, okay, hold on a second. Hello. Yes, we can generate. Hello, exactly. Uh, look, you can get into trouble. There's a lot of companies one could invest in where you look at COVID-type 
scenarios and you look at you know what's happened with them post COVID, you're like, well, hold on a second, uh, there's mm -hmm. a COVID bump. Uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case here. I think it's the case that the company has a pretty good handle on their capex. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go back to the unit economics we were talking about earlier, about they spend 100, they rent out 50% of the time. Um, it's pretty good. And so it's, should you have a slowdown, they can moderate their capex um, and increase free, free cash flows. Look, this isn't something you want to maintain for a very long period of time, because even though the short-term cash flows will come up, obviously you're not investing in, in growth. So it's, but, but there's, there is a short-term counter-cyclical element to uh, the cash flow, which is nice. Mm. Um, the other thing is construction used to be, I think, 70% of their revenues. Now I think it's about 40% of which residential construction is about 5 or so percent. Uh, and again, it's part of the specialty, part of their growth in other areas where their reliance construction is coming down. Obviously, 40% is still 40%, but it's, it's better than it was at 70. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, you mentioned counter-cyclicality uh, counter is... Um, I, I saw, gosh, I don't know if this was in one of their like investor day presentations. I just remember seeing some sort of stat out there, uh, when recessions hit, when economic slowdowns happen, people and companies are more apt to rent than they are to buy. Yes. And then the other thing too, like let's, you know, with interest rates rising, right? It makes a lot more sense to rent than it does to say to lease out in a piece of equipment or to buy a piece of equipment and then finance it. And so you have another kind of insulator, let's say from a downturn where um, if, if, if spending slows or, you know, let's say construction or development slows, you are buffered by maybe some incremental gains on those customers that instead of buying equipment is now going to rent because it's, it's cheaper and, and they still need to get the job done. You're doing my work for me here. You're basically <laughs> taking all the, the points and saying them before I do. So thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, th there's another one, I think, where you, you look at the the delta between the costs. What, what I'm trying to say there is, in an inflationary environment, if Ashton, in addition to what you were just saying, if Ashton have a pricing, purchasing power advantage, that should also help them in an inflationary environment compared to what their customers can go to OEMs and buy for themselves. Mm -hmm. So that should also hopefully insulate them a little bit. So when we think about valuation here, one thing, just going back to, you know, hey, what if we go into a recession? The flip side of that is, hey, what if this year is kind of, quote unquote, peak earnings for the company over, yep. let's say, the next three to five years? So yep. when you go to value this business, how do you think about valuation? Is it is it some type of normalized you know, average of let's say the last three to five years, or how are you kind of thinking about valuing this business? Um, you know, if you take the normalized free cash flow and you say, you know what, it's grown or EBITDA has grown 20% a year for the past while, let's not do that. Let's just grow it 10% a year for a while and then sort of, you know, slow it down and then do a normalized free cash flow because they've gone from rapid growth mode to, okay, more steady state. Um, you know, you, you can probably get to, I mean, sort of you know, 2 billion cash flow, you can get to something like 4 to 5 billion in free cash flow X years out. And you say, okay, wow. let me just apply a standard, you know, 10X or what have you, or discount it back at 10% and 
I used to, when I was a banker, I used to, you know, my job was to build these very complicated models because uh, you had to justify like a billion dollar public market transaction and stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, my, my boss would come in, who'd be, uh, you know, 20 years in the business would look at it and say, this is great. I think the price should be around here based on the comps, based on common sense, uh, based on knowing who the purchases are in this, in this deal. And he was right more times, more often than not. Uh, and I've kind of come to this idea that, you know what, if I have to build a very complicated model yeah. to justify a price, I probably don't want to invest in the business because I've, I've been burnt that way before. So I tend to take a very simple, look, they're about 2 billion in, in normalized free cash flow. Uh, they're not generating that now because they're investing in growth, but let's say five, 10 years, they get to sort of 4 billion or what have you. I think the value is pretty, uh, it's pretty clear uh, compared to where we are. I think you can grow, you know, you, you, you can underwrite a IRR of around sort of mid teens from here. We need, especially if you consider that I think the P or the EV EBIT or something is, is, mm -hmm. is approximately 10, 11 X. It's, it's not exactly trading at a challenged price here or rest yeah. price. So if I look at potential, let's say thesis killers or maybe some issues that could, that could prop up, uh, the first place I like to go is, is the balance sheet and, you know, kind of right away again, I, I don't, let's pretend I don't know anything about the business. They're holding 27 million in cash and they've got almost 6 billion in long-term debt. 7.7 like in, 7.7 in that debt. And that's yeah. around 7.7 so, 7 billion. Yeah. So, you know, kind of the first thing there is like, oh, like this thing looks pretty leveraged. Um, like what, yeah. what's, what's the reason for that leverage? Is it, is it just how they buy the equipment basically um and and, and how, how can that and go then, wrong it's buying equipment and it's investing in you know um some of their acquisitions investing in some of their greenfield sites so i'd say a, a lot of it is um is due to investing in that kind of growth look in in a um they're trading at 1.6 times uh net debt to ebitda by the way i don't like ebitda as a, a metric but that seems yeah. to be all the covenant stuff tend to be reported that way so you're stuck reporting it that way in many ways uh but one their goals are between 1.5 to two times uh leverage uh in fact i think part of the ceo and cfo's uh, remuneration um ties into their leverage so you know like charlie Munger says you you get what you incentivize for and they're at the lower end of the range they they uh they're targeting so they're doing pretty well. The, the other part of that is, you know, should the world slow down a bit, uh, they don't have to invest in growth as much if that's right. the problem and they can sell more of their equipment and pay, pay back some of their loans. Again, it's not something you want to see because it means, you know, the growth is slowing, uh, yeah. but from a survival point of view, uh, I think they're okay. So how does this, like, let's, let's say, well, actually the other thing before I ask the question is, you know, on on the topic of, of of debt and leverage, it does look like, and I'm just using ticker. It looks like they generate enough EBIT to cover interest expense about seven times over. So um, there's you know, unless unless something crazy happens, the interest, you know, the debt the debt burden isn't 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 terrible. But let's look forward now over the next three to five years, and for some reason, your your bet on Ash T just is totally wrong, right? The company. Uh, fails in ways that the market wasn't anticipating. Um, it you know just doesn't grow, margin shrink, all that stuff. Like, what would what would be kind of the one to three signposts that you would have seen 
over the course of that time to make you realize like, oh, this thesis is not playing out the way I expected it? Um, I think they're pretty good at sharing a lot of their KPIs. So, you know, one can follow those. But um, ultimately, the thesis is predicated on the fact that their return on equity is, is pretty good and they've got multiple levers to, to grow, both in terms of rental penetration going up as a percentage of the total um, uh, sort of market and in terms of their market share going up. And if over the next few years you see, well, hold on a second, these guys aren't growing their market share or the rental penetrations aren't growing, then you've got a fundamental problem from the top line of the uh, uh, of the whole thesis. And that, mm -hmm. you know, that becomes an issue. Uh, the other one is, look, I, I think their free cash flow conversion rates and all of that and their investment in growth is really interesting. Um, look, anytime though you have to normalize and take a company a little bit at its word or even do your own digging and make yeah. a few adjustments, there's always a risk at home and second, I've got this wrong. So if over time I see that the free cash flow generation isn't as rosy as I think it could be, and that I was just wrong that like, the free cash flow dynamics are never going to be interesting because frankly, I made a mistake in terms of this free cash flow, normalized free cash flow analysis. And I, I bought into that story too much. That's another one where you're just not going to get the value because you're not generating the cash flows, right? Right. Um, in the meantime, look, you can't control the macro, right? Um, but should you know should the macro environment happen? I think they said back in 2008, nine, they, they stopped investing in growth, um, and they regret it. They don't because it impacted their growth for, for yeah. a period of time. And given that they're only 1.6 times leverage, um, they feel they have a pretty strong balance sheet to be able to, you know, within reason, uh, withstand short-term economic disruptions and keep investing for the future. But seeing how management react to that, should that occur? I think is another big one where you say, okay, let's see what happens there. Uh, it's definitely, uh, but, but again, that's the opportunity. I think the reason this thing isn't trading in crazy multiples is um, because people are afraid of the market in general, might be afraid or might not be, you know, believing that these guys are slightly less cyclical now or that the macro will come and crush them. If, you know, it's two sides of the coin. You know, if there weren't a little bit of these worries, if everything, everything would really be priced in, it wouldn't necessarily be an attractive investment. Yeah. I mean, looking at the kind of 07 through 09, the period, uh, margins, looks like operating margins were call it, you know, there was, it was, it was 14% in 07 and this is EBIT 14% in 07, 18% in 08, 14% in 09. And then I think in, in, in 10, 11, you had 8% and 10%. And I think maybe part of that was them growing and kind of and 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 spending for growth out of that recession potentially but i mean you have a business through the gfc that generated positive ebit through that through that recession through that downturn um and you know I, I, actually what i think is happening is a little bit different actually to that what what happened i think it ties into some of the dynamics we mentioned before um what happened was one of the during the GFC, construction slowed a lot. Um, so that impacted them. And at the time, they were, you know, their, their share of revenue from construction was larger than it is today. Two, they didn't have as much specialty business. Now, specialty is about 30%. They actually have a really good slide in their, um, in their presentation, which addresses this entire point. So it's, a, again, you know, how much do you want to believe management? But it seems plausible to me. Um, yeah. 
the third thing was, you know, uh, so you had the situation where they were a smaller part of the total market them in United. There wasn't much pricing discipline. 20% reduction in rental rates impacted their revenues. And of course, that impacted their margins, but then they slowed down their investment in CapEx and all of that kind of thing, yep. which meant that that also slowed down their growth. But their margins in the short term were slightly anti-cyclical because they weren't investing so the depreciation all that didn't go up. So it, 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 in the short term, bolstered their margins by the expense of growth in the, in the following years. Got the situation it. now is a little bit different where they, together with the, the number one, two control 28% of the market, specialties 30% of revenues. There's so far during the cold COVID thing, they, there was evidence of pricing discipline, um, et cetera. So, oh, and, and you know, construction's a small part of their uh, total revenue base. Put all that together, I'm not going to pretend this is not a cyclical business. Obviously, it will be impacted by the cycle, but it should be far less cyclical than it was last time around. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that won't stop the volatility in the market. And think it's like it yeah, of course not. This has been an awesome conversation, and you you let me pick your brain on on an idea that I've been meaning to get around to. Um, and so I'm I'm you know I'm thankful that I that I got to learn from you and and those that listen. I'm 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 sure also thankful getting a new idea and 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 hearing the thesis uh, from someone like yourself. So I've got just a few last questions for you. The first one is where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter, but you're underfollowed, so I kind of hope we can yeah. hope we can change that. So, uh, what's what's the Twitter handle? And then, if you've got any that. websites or something like that, just let them know. Yeah, the best thing is my website, um, Um It's um, orientated towards sort of high net worth type investors. That's that's my, most of the people invest with me. I write my quarterly letters all on the website. So uh, to the extent people want to see the sort of things I've invested in, how I think about them, and you know, by all means disagree and tell me where you think I'm wrong or right, um, please you know, get in touch. I'm always happy to talk shop. Um, and then where are you on Twitter? Uh, at Sam Rakura, S-A-M-E-R-H-A-K-O-U-R-A. Awesome. And I'll make sure to put that in the uh, show notes. And then the last question I have for you, uh, Samir, is if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oh man, I won't, say, I won't say. I won't say. <laughs> I won't say but I, I, I might. I might. I might say. You know, I might say Charlie Munger because you know the guy's a, a national treasure. I think he. You know, where else can you be taught the meaning of life and you know in a very direct way? Um, disabused, be disabused of any sort of you know bad thinking you may have uh, in a very blunt way. I, I think that would be interesting, if challenging. Um, I don't know, random one, someone like Napoleon. I'm just dying to know what goes through someone's head where they think they can take over the entire world. Yeah. You know, it's just such a different way of thinking about things. It would be sweet to get a round table of Napoleon, Alexander the Great, and then Genghis Khan. And just like have them riff on how each of them thought about their conquest and like, I don't know if you could, and then and then just have them kind of red team each other's strategies. Where Genghis Khan is like, "Nah, Alex, you should have done this," and Napoleon's like, "Well, I, w I would have done it that way." That would just be wild. I think that would be um, one for the ages. 
it would be. <laughs> well, Samir, thanks so much again for coming on the show. Um, I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation, and I hope that this leads to further conversations uh, with you and other investors. And and best of luck to you the rest of the year, um, and and just you know continued success at Alfin. I, I really appreciate you having me on. It was, it was fun to talk. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.